0: I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. Welcome to Deep Cuts, the podcast where we pick a topic and then walk you through the ins, outs, and nitty-gritty, so you can appear like an interesting and idiosyncratic person at your next forced social function. Today's topic is... The Air Pirates. Who are the Air Pirates? They were an underground comics collective in the early 1970s, spearheaded by a counter cartoonist, and satirist, Dan O'Neill, who created a series of comics featuring Disney's characters like Mickey Mouse directly drawn in the exact image of the original characters without even their names changed in bizarre, hyper-political, and often graphically sexual situations in an attempt to satirize the Disney Corporation and its oppressive stranglehold on American culture. Once Disney got wind of these comics, O'Neill and the Air Pirates would enter into a decade-long legal battle with the Corporation in the attempt to defend the right to use Mickey Mouse and other Disney characters for the sake of parody that saw O'Neill broke institute, barely a penny to his name, potentially facing prison time, and being forced to pay Disney millions of dollars. The future of free speech hung in the balance.
1: Act 1. This hidden Mickey has a massive erection. The word martyr has lost a lot of its impact in recent years. Much like a lot of culturally or socially charged ideas that once held great power, It has been reduced into a meaningless barb in social media dunks, alt-right screeds, and insufferable neoliberal orange man bad op-eds. Zoomers, we promised that conversation used to be more than a flattened exchange of emotional truths that slowly pulverized the meaning of all language until talking to someone else was reduced to a futile performance of ideological Dadaism. But a true martyr? Well, a true martyr is someone who literally fucking dies for a cause. We'll fast forward to a more contemporary version of what it actually means to martyr yourself. To completely forfeit your life, risking bankruptcy, losing your career, estrangement from your friends and loved ones, being cast as the villain of a story in the history books that will be taken at face value for the rest of eternity, utter ruination, and ensuring that you will never again enjoy the personal fulfillment of any of your hopes or dreams for the rest of your life, in order to even attempt to make some aspect of the world a little better for other people, knowing full and well that you
0: will likely fail. As Dan O'Neil once said, doing something stupid once is just plain stupid. Doing something stupid twice is a philosophy. And when you're down 190,000 in a poker game, you have to raise.
1: Dan O'Neil was born in Virginia in 1942 but later moved to Northern California and is universally regarded by anyone who has known him throughout his life as a perpetual troublemaker and contrarian raconteur. When O'Neill was a teenager, he once pumped 4 million cubic feet of iron sulfide into the ventilation system of his high school, sending everyone home for a few days. And you know, I'm so curious about that story because, you know, there's not a lot about it other than just those vague details, and I would just love to know more specific details about that bizarre story and luckily thanks to my friend Zach who I've been friends with since high school and happens to live across the street from Dan we're actually incredibly fortunate enough to have Dan O'Neill here to talk to about this and everything else tonight
2: it's in Wikipedia I blew up Oakland High in 1958
1: I've read about that and I wanted to know more about it because I, I only read like very vague things what what happened and what did you do
2: it was like four million cubic feet of ferrous sulfide yeah four, four million that's, that's what it said. It was my seventh bomb because the others had gone into a locker and knocked out the school and everybody went home. So we all loved the idea.
1: How did you do it? That's what I was curious about.
2: Yeah, it was really easy. I got two glass cups, you know, and in one of them, I put ferrous sulfide and then put a screen on that to hold them in that and then turned that up. So the ferrous sulfide is up here. And in this other cup here is sulfuric acid. And so when you turn it up, the acid falls into the ferrous sulfide, out comes the gas. It was quite a deal to get it because my buddies all around the Catholic high schools were looting the uh, chemistry labs for sulfuric acid and ferrous sulfide. And then my uncle with a degree in Harvard from mathematics, who's running the military base in Alameda. And I get him to figure out how much acid to get how much gas. What were you trying to do? What was the goal? I don't know. Those days, they all lived in the, in the same neighborhood and grew up in the same place. And they all had these clubs. They're all separated from each other. It's all these cliques out, out from the outside. I was always from another town. I was banned from all the public schools in California. My father called up the Brothers of Mary in Alameda, so I went there, and uh, that's when I got the poison oak extract on the Archbishop. Archbishop, for two weeks, he swelled up like a big wood tick. So that's what they get for telling us we can't jack off, you know.
1: (laughs) (laughs) But when he wasn't rabble-rousing or engaged in elaborate public acts of satirical performance art... He was drawing cartoons. O'Neill went on to attend the University of San Francisco where he created work for the school newspaper, the San Francisco Foghorn. He drew cartoons for multiple counterculture papers throughout his college years and beyond until finally selling his comic strip, Odd Botkins, to the San Francisco Chronicle in 1963. He was 21 years old and had a syndicated comic strip that was featured in dozens of papers. He was the youngest syndicated newspaper cartoonist in history.
2: I'm 21 years old. When I get syndicated nationally. Yeah.
1: How did did that happen?
2: When I was 15 years old, this Chronicle reporter, Orr Kelly, he left the Chronicle and he started a weekly paper in Berkeley, the Berkeley Review. And he says to uh, his assistant editor, I need a cartoonist. And she says, well, I have a friend of mine who's an artist and uh, he has a son who's a cartoonist. So I, like I'm fifteen. Then then we turn out to be the first generation get hits by rock and roll and now it's the sixties and hate Ashbury and rock and roll acid anti-war. See, it's nineteen fifty seven when I start the comic strip. Upon starting
1: his strip at the Chronicle, he was given three simple rules no religion, no politics, and no sex. But being the chaotic, neutral maniac he was, the opportunity to completely subvert those rules and say fuck you to the paper that had hired him was much more alluring than the opportunity to become the next Charles Schultz with a several year head start. So he almost immediately started slipping radical political messages and drug references into Odd Botkins using methods such as Morse code and hippie slang that could only be deciphered by his target audience.
2: Do you follow politics fairly closely? Oh yeah, you have to, you know, it's a... I have a, a book cover for all history books. So if you have a history books in your house and you count them up all, and every one of them needs this cover on them. And it says, who the fuck are these assholes and how the fuck did I get here? <laughs> then, you know, that's, that's what I want to know from history. You know? That
1: would've been nice. Cause whenever we were in, when we were in high school, they made you put book covers on all your textbooks.
2: I know. Yeah. yeah that's- the strip
1: was also an immediate success. It was quickly syndicated out to over 350 papers with a total of 50 million readers. And it should really be stressed that this was fucking mind-blowing. No comic book in history has ever sold even close to 50 million copies. No TV episode besides the series finale of M.A.S.H. has ever achieved 50 million viewers. Avengers Endgame sold 278 million tickets across several months and two theatrical runs. Dude was easily netting 50 million readers per day. And yes, that was because his strip was syndicated into several papers that happened to have over 50 million readers. But they would have canceled the strip if people weren't reading it. Which makes it even crazier that O'Neill was heavily satirizing religion and politics almost from day one. As his political and religious undertones increasingly became overtones, papers started slowly dropping Odd Bodkins. 350 papers eventually dwindled down to low double digits, and the San Francisco Chronicle finally fired O'Neill outright. And uh one specific example that he gives is one of the Odd Bodkins strips was this dude in a KKK outfit. Is that why you drew the, the KKK
2: comic that got your, your strip dropped from the paper? Oh, no, the, uh, no, no, that was just... That Because it made me laugh. That was like, uh, that was 1964. Johnson is just warming up his seat in in the White House. Kennedy is supposed to be there, but he got shot two months before I get printed. And so there's this hood there. It's got a whip and a gun and a big cross. And it says, I don't care if those folks live next door. I, I don't care yeah chillings played with my chillings, um i just like the shooting and the burning and the hanging and the. I, I like that that's what i like and and they didn't they didn't
1: like that the paper didn't like it
2: that didn't go over well you had this incredible level
1: of censorship and he said that the moment that that strip dropped that like 30 papers dropped the strip
0: Cowards. Fucking cowards.
1: Yeah. I mean, we talk about, you hear a lot of people being like, I remember whenever it wasn't controversial to say that Nazis were bad. You, you know, that's a thing, that's a common refrain that people are saying in these very Verhoeven, toupee esque times. But, um, there was a time very not too long ago where it, still was controversial to say racism is bad. And it was before we were born, but it was very recently. They briefly hired him back a couple of times due to massive reader protest with people writing to the Chronicle to revive Odd Bodkins with O'Neill at the pin.
2: Every time they fired me, there was a squawk. The third time it was, was the biggest one where... If you get 60 letters of protest, they figure a hundred people wrote a letter and one of them had a stamp. And so they got 25,000 letters a day, 25,000 phone calls a day, 150 to 400 people jamming the doorways and the driveways of the Chronicle so they couldn't even get the paper out for eight days. And so this strip had made contact. However, sensing
1: the logical conclusion of the stance, O'Neill realized two things. Eventually, he'd be fired permanently, and the Chronicle owned Odd Bodkins, so he wouldn't be able to take it with him. He then had the first in a series of extremely unconventional and potentially disastrous ideas to engage in a kind of asymmetrical warfare with his opponent in order to get what he wanted in the end. He started adding Disney characters into Odd Bodkins. Just straight-up exact rip-offs of characters like Mickey Mouse and Pluto, not a cleverly disguised, copyright-infringement-free off-brand version like Randy Rat or Mickey Moose, he added 28 directly lifted Disney characters to his strip. How'd you get the idea to start putting Disney characters into the strip?
2: What happened is they owned the comic strip. They owned the copyright. The Chronicle did. So if they drop the strip, it's, it's over. There's nowhere. That they own it. It's done. They fired me three times. And I asked them for my copyright back. And they said, No. We're gonna be dead someday, O'Neill. We'll just and we'll reprint and get our money back.
0: Dan, I'm I'm curious. When did you first have the idea to do the Air Pirates? That's what
2: happened. I'm put back into the Chronicle. It looks like a you know looks good. We got a future here. The audience. I made contact six months later. Herb King calls me up. He says Richard Nixon up in the Bohemian Club. Up there, they all run around in bathrobes up there on the Russian River, talking to Charlie Terrier, saying to get rid of me. And Charlie Terriot said, We've tried three times. We're going to try again in four months. We don't think his audience will rise up again. And I didn't either. So I had four months to think of something to do. So that's in this book here. This book is copyrighted by the Chronicle. And in this book and into the comic strip, that they own 38 Disney characters. Somebody else's property, their their property, into my uh, worked into my story.
1: Why? Because he figured that if the Chronicle was going to fire him anyway, they might give him back the rights to Odd Bodkins in order to avoid personal liability if Disney got wind and decided to sue. And while the Chronicle eventually fired him for good in 1970, and while they didn't initially give him his ownership back of the strip right away, they ended up finally relinquishing ownership of it back to O'Neill two years later for reasons that we are about to get into. And uh, the the uh, there's going to be some more examples of this later on in the story um, of this type of like sort of outside of the box thinking from uh, from Mr. O'Neill. But, uh, you know, it's, it's funny. It kind of the 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 weird asymmetrical strategy of these little schemes he hatched kind of remind me of Tom Hansen and the just the the general concept of how he thought that he could catch. Um, the, the Zodiac Killer by making a movie about him and premiering it in the town where his, the Zodiac was likely living because he knew that he, he supposed that the, the Zodiac Killer was so vain that he wouldn't be able to resist coming to the premiere of his own movie. And it's like, it, it's very similar to me because it's like, it's, it's an idea that like when, when I don't think I would ever have thought of it. And whenever it's mentioned to you, you're like, Oh my God, like that's actually legit. Like I kind of totally see how that would happen but it also is based on such a high risk gamble where it's like that sounds kind of genius but it still requires a massive like like um like there there's a huge game of chance happening there even if it's a very good idea
0: it's kind of like almost like comics chemotherapy where you're like all right i'm gonna kill myself but I'm going to wager that my body is so strong that even though I'm actively killing myself, I'm going to outlive the disease inside of me.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It's like, yeah, it can't, will this kill the, the, the cancer before I die?
0: Like, you know, it's basically a, this is the equivalent of like, I think that my mental acuity and my perseverance and fortitude are strong enough to break this shitty contract that I was given. So I'm going to, just set my life on fire and I'm going to just grit my teeth and hopefully I have some hair when all of this (laughs) shit is you know stamped out because god damn it my back is currently on fire like I'm I'm, I'm feeling it like my oh my god my skin is bubbling
1: (laughs) it's like that moment in like Mad Men or whatever that moment whenever Don Draper like gets that look in his eye and then he knows what to do and then he starts doing something that doesn't make sense and you're just like where is he going with this and like everyone's like you're fucking crazy and then it like just works perfectly but in real life where it's like this is not a tv show you are straight up just gambling with your fucking life and yes this is kind of genius but also we can only look back at it on retrospect and be like it worked it was smart but in the moment it's like holy shit this is some scary shit this is some scary risk-taking Newly unemployed, but with a motley crew of counterculture cartoonist friends he'd acquired over the last several years, O'Neill decided to do what he should have done all along. He decided to get into the underground comic scene of the 1970s alongside legendary figures like R. Crumb and Trina
0: Robbins. Trina Robbins, yay! R. Crumb, not so much. Trina Robbins, yay! I love Trina Robbins, co-creator of Vampirella, and also a bunch of other stuff that is not... Vampirella but you know that's the thing that probably most people that aren't into underground comics are into but also this is a whole episode about underground comics from the 70s so i'm assuming that we're going to be preaching to the uh the educated
1: yeah i yeah i'm sure i'm sure most people well
0: no i feel yeah i feel like
1: we're i feel like we are we're going to have a good mix of like people who definitely know who Trina Robbins is and people who are just like who's our crumb
0: yeah Trina Robbins rules though
1: yeah but uh, and and he did sort of he he did intermingle with a lot of those people the 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 comics with an ex people back in the day but i think i think he was specifically kind of friends with r crumb and uh as my friend zach who he is neighbors with dan o'neill he pointed out to me that there's a scene in the robert crumb documentary which i I've, i saw back in like high school but i haven't watched it since where um crumb is talking on the phone with dan o'neill
0: Yeah, that movie, like, low-key changed my life. Partly because I was like, am I not fucked up enough to make comics? Yeah. Do I have to be, like, out on the street exposing myself to strangers in order to make good work? Like, the part where Arkham's brother talks about how he has a meditation practice where he eats a piece of rope and then slowly passes it through his intestine and then slowly shits it out over a course of hours— is just like, I mean, I think I was like 14 when I saw it, 15, and I was like, oh my god, what? I need to be shit rope meditating to make comics? This is fucked up.
1: And now, of course, you have- Oh, I'm a shit rope master. Hanging now. out of the side of your mouth as we speak.
0: Yeah, no, 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 no problem, man.
1: You slurp it up like spaghetti.
0: Yeah, no problem. No problem at all.
1: You actually do it like the full circle. Once you shit it out, you actually tied it into a knot and then you just it's like the human centipede but it's just you.
0: Oh yeah, I that's I only do that like every third week though. I call that my mobius. Mobius shit. <laughs> my mobius shit. Yeah. And and now we've just we've just scared off every listener who was like, "Oh, maybe this is Interesting. I don't know anything about 1970s comics. Uh, Maybe this could be cool. If you can't
1: stand the shit rope, get out of the kitchen. But he didn't just want to draw comics. He wanted to create an artist collective dedicated to cranking out massive amounts of protest comics. And he had a very peculiar fixation for his protests. O'Neill and some of his friends had become obsessed with sticking it to the empire that our boy and former subject of the show, Walt, along with thousands of uncredited others, built... Disney. O'Neill felt like Disney's characters, specifically Mickey Mouse, had started out as wholesome cartoons that depicted the common man fighting against the odds, but over the years as the company grew in power, they had become the largest and most effective propaganda machine in the world. They had exploited the wholesome image they'd cultivated throughout the 30s, 40s, and 50s to use their characters as a sort of glossy sheen to smooth over the ugliness going on in the United States. Disney's desire to grow their power and continue making more and more profit gave them a vested interest in keeping people docile and unwilling to push for societal change. And so they pumped out a technical revision of the world where government corruption, the military-industrial complex, and massive class inequality just didn't exist. And since they had such a large market share in American culture and the public consciousness, it was actually effective. Disney could trick an entire society into ignoring all of its major problems and continue believing they were living in a great place. As Bobby London, one of the artists that O'Neill would eventually recruit for his cause, once said of his motivations
0: for joining the Air Pirates. Throughout my childhood, Mickey Mouse was used as a placebo to lull me into thinking everything was alright. But I found that happily ever after world of Walt and Mickey Mouse to be a poor half-truth. Air Pirates Funnies shows that Mickey doesn't always win. O'Neill wanted to take characters like Mickey Mouse that were
1: being used to hypnotize people into becoming blind to the systemic injustice and cruelty, and use them to represent the gritty realities of our society. He rounded up artists like Bobby London, Gary Halgren, Sherry Flinnegan, and Ted Richards, and they formed the comic artist collective, The Air Pirates. A reference to a team of villains from an old Mickey Mouse comic strip in the 1930s that operated out of a converted firehouse owned by Godfather and Apocalypse Now director Francis Ford Coppola in downtown San Francisco.
2: Then, simultaneously finding the troops i needed first i got ted and then bobby and then we're up in the sky river i said we gotta get a girl they went and got sherry and i i'm sitting there and here hello, hello, here's you. this okay. 1950s panel truck with okay. this sign on it the most beautiful pen line brush line that's the guy i gotta get this guy i sit there at this campsite and i wait for the guy to come back i says who did that uh, Is Gary Halgren? Is he here? He's here somewhere. I says, you get him to come down to the media center, or I'll kill you. I told him. I convinced him that I would kill him if he didn't get Gary. So that's how we got Halgren. They began putting out
1: dozens of comic books in the early 1970s, but most notably two specific books: Air Pirate Funnies Number One and Number Two. They were comics done in a shockingly accurate mimic of old Mickey Mouse comics from the 30s and 40s. Gary Halgren and Bobby London were masters at recreating that style. In fact, you might mistake them for actually being authentic at a quick glance. Only upon closer inspection would you notice that the rounded, cutesy, signature Disney comics house style was twisted to depict graphic scenes of classic Disney characters cursing, doing drugs, having explicit sex, and lamenting political and religious oppression. So uh, we've we've got the covers and a couple of pages here from air pirates funnies number one and number two um so you know dave you want to you want to take a look at these and kind of describe what we're seeing here
0: yeah so um the 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 cover to issue number one which is like when people talk about the air pirates uh this is the image that most people usually reference uh the title credit is mickey mouse meets the air pirates funnies and um it's an image of uh, Mickey Mouse in a kind of World War One esque, uh, fighter plane, uh, with a machine gun mounted on the top. And he's wearing kind of a dorky, uh, you know, air, air, uh, what are they called? Air Boys? There was a, there was a name for World War One fighter pilots that was really kind of very, you know, 1915 sounding, but I, I don't remember what that term is. Sky honkies. <laughs> yeah. 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 Those, um, uh, cloud jabronis. Uh, he's wearing one of the, the patented, um, horizon hip hop boy, uh, leather helmets. And, um, on the back of the plane are two packages of dope that have been, uh, strapped to the, 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 the end of the tail. Um, and it, w- w- Mickey Mouse is like firing the, the machine gun off into the distance. And then the cover to issue two is, uh, Mickey and Minnie Mouse on top of two donkeys in the, in a desert landscape. Um, and a uh, it, this I feel like this character is from Disney, right? I don't remember this character's name, but I, f- I feel like this is very familiar looking. Um, but I didn't read a lot of the, the Mickey Mouse daily strips. Yeah, I think
1: yeah, I mean I th- I'm pretty sure all the characters in these books are all Disney characters.
0: Okay, so yeah, I'm, I'm not as familiar with this kind of like winged devil character um, who's holding two bags of dope and has um, Mickey and Minnie at gunpoint on back on the back of these donkeys. Um and um yeah I mean the art styles uh are very obviously you know leaning into the 40s strips you know it's not as much the original Mickey that uh what's his face made um of Iworks created um because fuck Walt Disney he didn't create Mickey Mouse um it's it's much more like the later years the more refined like once. Of iworks quit disney and went and formed his own animation company uh obviously other illustrators and and artists were brought in and you know they made a bunch of mickey mouse animated films and shorts and slowly over time he kind of was refined and refined and refined into kind of what we all think of today as mickey mouse um and then um as far as the interior pages go um I mean, they're very, they're very convincing with a few minor kind of like underground comics, visual tropes, you know, like the layouts aren't necessarily something you would probably see. And honestly, the drawings are dead on like the drawings look exactly like those 30s and 40s newspaper strips. It's just the content of the strips and the lettering like the, it's all hand lettered but it's not lettered in a way that is very smooth and simple in the way that a lot of that era newspaper strips were it's a little more kind of crude and and hand lettered this first
1: page we're seeing here it's a short strip and it's it's called the uh, silly simp silly sympathies. Silly, symphath- silly sympathies yeah i keep wanting to say the actual real thing symphonies but it's silly sympathies And, uh, it's got Mickey Mouse and he's, he's walking through the woods or something like that. And he's like, the whole world thinks I'm cute. So why won't Minnie fuck me? Why won't Daisy fuck me? Why won't anyone fuck me? And he's like on, on the ground crying. And then, uh, and then some king dog guy that, yeah, that like, I'm pretty sure this is a character. I just don't know who they are specifically. He, like, walks up with, like, a laser pistol or something like that, and he goes, he goes,
0: poor baby. And then the next page that we have here is, uh, <laughs> it's Mickey Mouse giving Minnie Mouse oral pleasure.
1: Basically, I mean, we haven't gotten into, like, the the legal stuff or whatever, but essentially this was the biggest deal out of any of this stuff. People freaked out about the Mickey, Mickey going down on Minnie art that was like the biggest controversy
0: i i've never read i mean prior to us prior to us doing this i wasn't i i had never read the air pirate stuff i was just aware it existed um but this is like totally up my alley of like i love weird bootleg stuff i love weird performance art and this is kind of like if you hired an outsider artist to create Minnie mouse and mickey mouse comics right um but this image of Mickey going down on Minnie I've seen in like so many documentaries and I've seen it everywhere like it it really is like the single image that just escaped comics and like is even in like mainstream documentaries and shit
1: yeah I mean Dan O'Neill said that like he thinks that if this hadn't been in here that none of this would have ever happened and that they probably would have just like not even noticed it or just like overlooked it or whatever but this specific thing just was so taboo in the current like sexual culture that existed at the time that it like pushed it over the edge and i i don't really i don't i i tried to like i i couldn't find like a, all the pages to like piece together to actually read like stories or whatever so but from the from the few pages i was able to find i don't i still don't know specifically what's going on but it seems like that these it's like pete the cat and the big bad wolf and then this weird king guy which i'm sure is a character i just don't know who it is um and they're like mickey and minnie are like they're on like a blimp or like an airship or something and these guys are watching them through like a surveillance system and then minnie is like pissed off at mickey because she always gets him in trouble and then he kind of like convinces her to let him go down on her and so he's doing that and then they start 69ing with his giant mouse boner and then a trap door opens up in the in the they, the, they open the bad guys open up a trap door in the bottom of the plane. They fall through it and then they're just free falling through the sky and Minnie's like you motherfucker I knew this was going to happen and I I don't know I don't know what else was happening. That was all I could find. Yeah, the, there doesn't seem to be any complete, like, versions of it that you can, like, read on the internet, which is kind of funny, which is kind of ironic that it's, like, a bootleg comic and it's never been bootlegged onto the internet. You can buy copies of the actual issues on eBay for, like,
0: 90 bucks, which I almost, I was tempted to get, and then I was like, nah. And in retrospect, I'm kind of glad I didn't. But, I mean, we get the idea. It's a comic, bootleg comic, starring Mickey Mouse. He and Minnie Mouse fuck, and then uh Disney didn't like it...
1: Well, initially they didn't know about it. They didn't they didn't feel any any type of way about it. Um but that would change very soon. They also had equally bizarre schemes for trying to distribute these comics. Some of the ideas included paying homeless people to dress up as cops and sell the books on street corners and dropping them down on random passersby from a blimp. Whatever their methods, there was apparently enough demand for these books and the Air Pirates did a print run for Air Pirates Funnies 1 and 2 of 15,000 to 20,000 copies each. But the gang, particularly O'Neill, weren't necessarily looking to just move the books to as many people as possible. They wanted to make a statement and incite a reaction. Making the books was less an act of creating reading material for the Bay Area counterculture and more a declaration of war. That's what needed to happen for O'Neill's vision for the Air Pirates to come to fruition. But before war could be declared, the enemy needed to know you existed first. And despite how easy you think it might be to get a massive media corporation coming after you for directly ripping off their intellectual property, they couldn't seem to get Disney to notice them. One night, O'Neill went to a dinner organized by his lawyer, Mike Kennedy, with a bunch of his other clients, more firebrand counterculture types like O'Neill. One of the people at the dinner was the son of the chairman of the board at Disney at the time, who had allegedly been given money by his father to buy a bookstore in San Francisco instead of being given an executive position at Disney like his siblings had because he was gay. O'Neill and the man started talking about the Air Pirates, and eventually the man agreed to take a stack of the Air Pirates' funniest books and lay them out at the conference table of the board of directors. Well, this certainly got Disney's attention, and was the start of a years-long battle that would see O'Neill financially ruined. Facing prison time and fighting for the very concept of free speech. And also fighting for the right to draw mouse boners? Act 2. I C. See ya in court. K-E-Y. Why? Because we're a multinational conglomerate that owns half the world. Have you ever fought tooth and nail to get a job, and only when they offer it to you do you then realize, oh shit, what am I doing? I don't want to have a job. Or excitedly eaten like four donuts in a row, only to regret it for the rest of the day. Well, one can only imagine how Dan O'Neill might have felt when he received that first subpoena from the Walt Disney Corporation as a direct result of the campaign he spearheaded to piss them off. Or maybe nobody can imagine how O'Neill felt because he is truly of a different breed. I'd be shitting myself, but I'd like to hope that he just nodded thoughtfully and calmly whispered, it has begun to himself.
0: How did you find out that you were being sued for Air Pirates number one and two?
2: Oh, we did everything we could to get him. I did everything I could to get him. So once I had him, uh, uh, Jim Mitchell was telling me, and Jim and Art Mitchell, were my pals, Jim was telling me, you're going to have to get hardcore uh, on him to get him. So that's Mickey going down on Minnie, which was big news in 1971. A man on his knees. You know, that was not done.
1: Is that really true? Were you really trying to get them to sue you like you were going after it?
2: Absolutely. Absolutely. I wanted my copyright back.
1: From everything I've seen of Dan O'Neill, it seems like he is just like he's on a whole other wavelength. And he did not react to that in the way that a regular person would. But you gotta be like confident in your decision making to purposely get Disney pissed off at you. and then it works and you get subpoenaed to come to get sued by Disney and then just just be confronted with that and be like, I did this.
0: I 13 years, I, it's all me. I did this. That's some big I'm the on now energy. like just full on like, I'm de corporation now. yeah he he fucking uh captain
1: phillips the shit out of disney yeah walt disney roy disney which fucking tom
0: hanks played walt disney so the metaphor it's all there it's all there you know what i want to see a dan o'neill movie where where tom hanks plays dan o'neill yeah
1: and he also plays walt disney and it's like a weird like the clumps
0: yeah, like we're all, we're all Dan O'Neill and we're all Walt Disney. But also, he was like,
1: he had been dead for like four years when this happened.
0: He also plays Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse in like crazy Dick Tracy style makeup in like these elaborative, like interpretive kind of like abstract art sequences where you're in air quotes reading the comics. Oh my God.
1: Imagine a movie that is like a combination of, um, A combination of cool world and then that steve jobs movie that danny boyle made yeah and it's just like it it keeps cutting like and tom hanks plays everybody so it's like tom hanks and he's drawing these he's drawing these comics and then it like goes into the comic and it shows the comics like animated but it's it's what you said it's live action with him just wearing these grotesque costumes and then it cuts to the court trial that all just takes place in one shot. And it's all, it's all, um, it's all a single shot on a steady cam, um, like Birdman. But every person is Tom Hanks.
0: This sounds like, you, I mean, I would love it to be Tom Hanks, but the real answer is this is a Nick Cage movie. Oh, yeah. Yeah. It's Nick Cage playing every fucking part in the movie the men, the women, the children. But they don't even like they don't even CGI his face onto a child's body. It's just like him standing on his knees being like, I just want to go read the funny papers, mama.
1: Oh, yeah, that's what I was imagining. I wasn't I wasn't imagining that they like face replaced. I was imagining that like they shoot the whole thing with motion with with uh, with motion control. So it's like it's one long take and it's all handheld. But it's all shot on motion control, so they have to do the whole thing like 20 different times in a row, and every single time, Nick Cage has to play a different part, and then they just take them all and composite them together, and then it's just like 20 different Nick Cages playing the judge and the jury and Dan O'Neill and the Disney lawyers.
0: And then the, the camera pulls out of the set and we see the cast and crew watching with like green screen dummies for all of the other takes of Nick Cage. And we pull back even further out of the screen again. And then we see us, the audience watching the movie. And then we pull out one more time and we're in the editing bay where Nick Cage is just like, yeah, yeah, this was really good, yeah. And then we pull out one more time and then we realize we're watching all of this on an Academy Awards broadcast set. And we pan over and it's Dan O'Neill playing Nick Cage at the Academy Awards ceremony. And he's like, well, I, Nick Cage, actor of Mickey Mouse Meets the Air Pirates, I would just like to say thank you for nominating me for best actor, best actress, best supporting role, male and female and um I'm just thrilled to be accepting this Academy Award. Good night.
1: And then the camera pulls out one more time and they've done this weird like gimmick thing in the mu- in the movie theater where they have like taken a picture of the whole audience and they've like randomly with like face recognition technology they've randomly selected one face from the audience And then they quickly like face track it onto a character and it's like the camera pulls out and then it has that like red bullseye thing. And then just like one random person from the audience just pops out and goes, but that's all folks. Warner Brothers presents Space Jam 3 colon fuck Disney. (laughs) The court case began with the air pirates lawyers arguing that they were cultural satirists at the level of Jonathan Swift the 18th century author of Immodest Proposal, the satirical essay where he suggested that Irish poverty could be solved by the poor citizens selling their children as food to the rich socialites. Disney's lawyers argued that O'Neill and the pirates were producing quote-unquote obscene nonsense designed to degrade and disparage all that Disney had done. Their major problem with what the pirates were doing was that they seemed to be planning to just use the characters indefinitely, effectively permanently co-opting the copyrights of Mickey Mouse and others to use however they wanted. This wasn't nearly the first time that Disney's characters had been satirized in an explicit manner by counterculture figures and underground comic artists, but the past examples had all been one-offs that Disney could overlook. The Air Pirates basically wanted to be a second home to Mickey Mouse, the laid-back, slovenly dad he stayed with on the weekends who let him watch horror movies and go to bed without brushing his teeth, and most importantly, never paid any child support this analogy is not based on personal experience at all (laughs) could you kind of walk us through like what happened throughout the trial
2: oh yeah that got really that, that got great the first trial took five minutes to convict me of uh copyright infringement trademark violation unfair business practices business disparagement and aggravated assault on mickey mouse
1: it stated that Disney, through, quote, great effort and large sums of money, had created characters whose image of innocent delightfulness are known and loved by people all over the world, particularly children, and that the defendants' efforts to, quote, disparage and ridicule these characters threatened to destroy Disney's business. Disney's lawyers were looking for all the profits from sales of the Air Pirates Funnies books, 5000 for each copyright infringement, punitive damages of $100,000 for each defendant, Surrender of all copies of the books, and reimbursement of all of Disney's attorney's fees, which would eventually end up becoming millions of dollars. Based on these opening claims, the court laid down a temporary restraining order barring the Air Pirates from continuing to produce any more comics. Not just Disney bootleg comics, like, they were just like, they were literally like, you legally can't draw until this court case ends. It's
0: fucking crazy, man. It's fucking crazy.
1: Which, you know, the, the modern day equivalent of that is like that, that does happen a lot. And, and I'm not, com- I'm not comparing these two things as equal at all, but a lot of times when people get busted for hacking crimes, they, they literally get, um, a, a court order that they're not allowed to use computers. Um, and like even being caught like looking at a computer screen, would be violating your probation. Because Disney's lawyers felt that allowing the pirates to continue to disparage Disney's work would cause it irreparable harm through the destruction of business, goodwill, and public image, whose monetary equivalent would be difficult or impossible to ascertain, but which it was doubtful the pirates could pay. This initial temporary ruling scared off most of the air pirates, and they all abandoned the collective and declined to defend their right to the characters in court. Only O'Neill, Ted Richards, Bobby London, and Gary Halgren stuck around to fight the case. What was your ultimate goal with
2: the whole trial? Well, it was about the son of a bitch was using the copyright laws to, to shut down free speech. I have just been doing a comic strip for seven years daily, and I, I write down a product. I can't name a person. I can't, I can't, anything, I, I'm shut down. Yeah. So now... Uh Uh-uh. Break it open.
1: After that, the case was scheduled to be heard by Judge Albert C. Wollenberg in the U.S. District Court on March 10th of 1972. Before the scheduled session, the Air Pirates held a press conference with O'Neill's lawyer, Mike Kennedy, where they claimed, The line belongs to
0: us. If it ends up a mouse... It's still a line. We have absolute freedom to copy anything as long as we add to it.
1: And, you know, they kind of reminiscent of what we were just talking about with with Escape from Tomorrow, kind of the whole point of doing this press conference was just this ongoing attempt to get a rise out of Disney. So they did this press conference just to be like, just as like a weird, like a fuck you stunt. But unlike Escape from Tomorrow, these things were working. Very much. It was around this time, leading up to the huge trial with O'Neill and the rest of the pirates, making big noise in the media, gearing up to take on Disney, that the San Francisco Chronicle decided to quietly hand the ownership of Odd Bodkins back to O'Neill. It seems that they couldn't take the heat of potentially becoming implicated and involved in this trial, and decided to fold. O'Neill's long con gambit had worked, even if not exactly in the way he had planned. Now it was time to see if this meant he actually was a master strategist who could successfully navigate himself out of this pickle, or if it was just dumb luck. On the day of the trial, O'Neill showed up at the courthouse dressed like a cowboy with a bandana, 10-gallon hat, and gun holster with a banana in it. He stepped out of an elevator into the lobby of the courthouse... <laughs>
0: You can't just scoot by that. You can't just scoop by that. That is so good. It's not even
1: it's it's not even done. It's not even near. Can you done. imagine
0: can you imagine Nick Cage walking out of an elevator with in full cowboy regalia with banana guns?
1: <laughs> so Dan O'Neill goes to the, the courthouse, he comes out of the elevator, he's dressed like a cowboy, he's wearing a cowboy hat, he's got a gun holster, and then there's a banana in the gun holster. He has the bandana up over his face. He walks out of the elevator and he's like gonna do this bit where he's going to walk out and pretend like he's holding up the courthouse, but he steps out of the elevator and he doesn't get more than a couple words into his bit. He starts going like he starts. He steps out and he's like, all right, this is a there's this like giant bodybuilder U.S. marshal that's in the lobby. And he immediately just tackles him, and he gra- <laughs> he grabs him by the neck, and he lifts him up, and he pins him against the wall, and he grabs his radio, and he's like, "Hey, uh, we got a guy down here." And and as soon as he starts to say that, he notices that he's holding a banana, and um, he he so he pauses, and then he goes, uh, "A guy up here with a banana." <laughs> And then he uh so he's got O'Ne- he's got Dan O'Neill pinned up against the wall, choking him out. And he says this into the walkie-talkie, and then uh Dan chokes
0: out Is it a Chiquita? What the fuck is a Chiquita? What? Does that not say Chiquita? You don't know what a Chiquita banana is? I have n- I have no idea what that is. It's the brand
1: of banana. Like it's the only one. <laughs> really? Yes. It's like the Kleenex of bananas. <laughs>
0: I have literally never come in contact with this information in my entire life
1: like bananas are either just like uh, like generic or they're if they are branded, they are chiquita bananas like I can't think of any other brand of banana
0: yeah, I, I'm not aware of any brands of bananas, but you can't blame me, man wait wait a minute you no we can't you can't blame me Andrew, I'm from Arizona. we don't have schools
1: there. I mean, it's this. This is a bridge too far, though. Hold on, I'm gonna. You've you've never seen this logo.
0: Ah, uh, I mean, it doesn't look unfamiliar to me, but I would not have known. Like, if you just showed me that logo, I wouldn't have been like, "Oh yeah, the banana logo."
1: I mean, just I. I don't even know what to say to this.
0: Sorry, bro. Of
1: all of anything that could have happened, of literally any scenario that could have played out, there is no way I would have ever, in a million years, guessed that it would have been. Dave doesn't know what Chiquita bananas are.
0: Nah, dude. Nah, dude. I've never, never, uh, never come in contact with that information before.
1: At any rate, this hilarious, spontaneous moment that occurred in this courthouse in the early '70s would have been completely lost on a time displaced Dave. Who happened to be in this courthouse, but whenever he had him pinned against the wall, choking him out, and he told the, he spoke into the radio and said that the guy had a banana. Dan said in response,
0: Chiquita, it's a Chiquita.
1: (laughs) Or, or so he claims, (laughs) but you can never be quite sure. You can't even be quite sure that Chiquitas are even a real thing that exists.
0: I mean, I kind of think you're gaslighting me right now.
1: Yeah, I mean, Dan O'Neill isn't even a real person. Disney's goal in this opening court hearing was to be awarded an injunction against the Air Pirates, an official order by the judge to stop using Disney characters in their comics, by convincing Wallenberg that they would likely win the entire trial, and that the company's profits and reputation would be damaged if the pirates were not immediately banned from doing so before the trial could reach a final verdict. They essentially wanted to take O'Neill and the pirates through the ringer of a years-long trial that would eventually see them owing millions of dollars, but in the meantime make sure that they were completely creatively hobbled and unable to continue producing their work before actually being convicted of anything. The defense claimed that all humor is based on, quote, "...conflict between the expected and the actual, and parody juxtaposes a known existing work against something else. To succeed, the reference to the original must be made clear and kept clear." the pirates were engaged in, quote, aesthetic and political criticism of a deeply serious nature. Secondarily, in regards to the charges of copyright infringement, they claimed that an entire work could be copyrighted, but not individual characters. And that even if a character could be copyrighted, the use of that character for parody was protected under the Fair Use Doctrine, which had been a common law doctrine protecting partial usage of copyrighted materials for things such as parody since the early 1700s. Now, there's an important distinction there. Fair use was a common law doctrine, or in other words, a generally accepted set of guidelines for the law that has been established by aggregating the opinions and rulings of several judges over a period of years. Once enough legal cases have ended with a certain verdict and the judge giving a certain final opinion, future judges can look back at that collection of cases and understand that a precedent has been set for a particular ruling in that type of case and therefore it basically becomes the law. But the malleable nature of common law has wiggle room to be pushed against, redefined or manipulated if you have enough power and money and enough sway over the judge. Not to mention the fact that fair use is just about the grayest area of law in the world. For the sake of the listener, um, could you just explain what your fair Use argument was?
2: Well, I was doing uh, a parody. I'm not doing piracy, is when I'm using their comics strips doing the work that they created, not something new. You you know, parody is, uh, it looks like that, it evokes that, but it's not behaving like that
1: at all. And it's kind of important that it does look like it because otherwise it kind of loses some of its impact. It loses the shock. It loses,
2: yeah, it has to be perfect.
1: The Pirates' primary claim of fair use was that they had only copied the characters in visual form and name only. They had then produced original plot, dialogue, setting, themes, and character personalities that were different from Disney's distinct characters. Or, essentially, their character looked like Mickey Mouse and was named Mickey Mouse, but he wasn't the Disney Mickey Mouse... He was a different Mickey Mouse that wanted to scream about the Vietnam War and go down on Minnie. And they weren't trying to pass their product off as a Disney product. It was marketed to a different audience, adult counterculture types, and sold in a different market, in the back of head shops, dropped from blimps, and peddled by homeless people on the street corners. O'Neill and his defense team also tried to argue that the lawsuit was infringing on his First Amendment right to free speech. He believed that Mickey Mouse and these other characters had become part of our national collective unconscious, as well as an internationally known symbol of American culture and power and a, quote, "...reactionary force devoted to establishment values, a partisan of elements and values in American government and society which the Air Pirates oppose." Disney's desire to turn Mickey into a cultural monolith, inexorable from the American experience, had also rendered him an inherent aspect of the American experience that any American citizen had the right to criticize directly through artistic expression. We had just as much right to create works using the likeness of Mickey Mouse to criticize him and Disney as we had to create political cartoons depicting politicians. If SNL can have Alec Baldwin playing an ironically self-aware version of Donald Trump on every episode of their show for like four years straight, then someone can produce a regular comic book series featuring a Mickey mouse that fucks or so was the argument
0: mickey mouse that
1: fucks just just mothman and mickey mouse just raw dogging double raw dogging they'll be fucking 138ing thir- th- mm-hmm, 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 mm-hmm. each of the remaining pirates filed a sworn statement of purpose Richard, who was being sued for using the Big Bad Wolf and the Three Little Pigs characters in his segments of the Air Pirates Funnies, said, The Wolf and the Pig has existed within folk literature for well over 500 years, Walt Disney Studios cannot claim exclusive ownership of an old folk story. O'Neill's affidavit said, Disney presented Mickey Mouse to us when we were children. As cartoonists and adults, we approach Mickey Mouse as our major American mythology. I chose to parody exactly the style of drawing and the characters to evoke the response created by Disney. My purpose in using the mouse as a character is not to destroy the Disney product, but to deal with the image in the American consciousness that the Disney image implanted. Disney's lawyer, Frank Donovan, argued in response that for its copyright to be meaningful, the characters within these works had to be regarded as, quote, copyrightable component parts, for which they had achieved identification independent of the cartoon strips, books, and pictures in which they had appeared. Disney had spent millions of dollars and years of effort developing these characters. Disney's defense also dismissed fair use as a quote potpourri of so called principles, most of which are virtually meaningless. Regardless of how you feel about this case in general, and whether or not what the Pirates were doing was considered fair use, it's objectively horrifying for a major corporation to try and successfully make an argument in court that destroyed the very validity of the fair use doctrine. Disney then went on to say that the Pirates' claims of free speech violation were nonsense, and that they could effectively erase all existing copyrights anytime anyone wanted to parody them. Wollenberg was not sympathetic to the Pirates' claims of fair use or First Amendment violation. As O'Neill's lawyer, Mike Kennedy, said of him,
0: If he wasn't a fan of Disney at the start, he was by the end. We may have driven him there by being so obnoxious and the work being so profane. Jonathan Swift? He did not think we were.
1: The only thing that kept Wollenberg from handing down the injunction with swiftness was that legal history hadn't made it clear to him if cartoon characters could be individually copyrighted. There were multiple examples of cartoon characters such as Superman winning the right to copyright protection in court decisions over the years. But a U.S. Court of Appeals decision in the early 50s over a case between Warner Brothers and CBS had cast doubt on it. In the case, Maltese Falcon author Dashiell Hammett had sold the rights to the main character Sam Spade to CBS for use in a radio broadcast. However, when Warner Brothers had optioned the film rights and produced the Maltese Falcon movie starring Humphrey Bogart, they sued CBS for their radio production claiming that they owned the rights to Sam Spade. The ruling of the case was that Warner Brothers owned the rights to the story of the Maltese Falcon, but that they couldn't also own the rights to the individual characters in the story. As the Ninth Circuit Court put it,
0: The characters were vehicles for the story told, and the vehicles did not go with the sale of the story.
1: However, in response to this, Disney argued that in this court case, it had been ruled that the character could be copyrighted if it, quote, really constitutes the story being told. woolenberg ultimately concluded that the principal appeal of Disney's books to the primary audience of children for which they were intended lies with the character and nothing else. Or, in other words, because you can sit your kids in front of the TV or hand them a comic and they don't actually care what's happening in it plot or theme-wise as long as Mickey Mouse is in every single panel, he qualifies to be copyrighted. Wollenberg had become convinced that Mickey Mouse was protected by Disney's copyright ownership. The only question now was whether the Air Pirates had used too much of the character to be protected by fair use, which, according to this particular case, they definitely had. O'Neill had admitted to copying the characters exactly, which was all that Wollenberg needed. He dismissed O'Neill's case of free speech violation outright, saying that bringing free speech into a case like this would obliterate copyright protection. The other pirates besides O'Neill were all asked to settle for nominal sums with Disney, but that, given that they agreed to never use the characters again, Disney wouldn't ever attempt to collect. They were essentially being allowed to get off scot-free as long as they admitted that they had stolen the characters and moved on. All but Richards and London took the settlement deal, and they and O'Neill soldiered on with the trial. But things were only going to get worse for
0: O'Neill, and as Richards later said, I felt a commitment to stay with Dan. I had received great training from him, and, in return, I would stay in the battle. But it was a mistake.
1: Act 3. I don't know if Goofy is a dog or not, but I do know Dan O'Neill is fucked. Wollenberg postponed the trial until August 11th of 1979, and O'Neill and the others were forced to stew in the anxiety of impending debt for literal years. Disney's lawyers moved for Wallenberg to consolidate O'Neill, Richards, and London into one prosecutable entity and award them a summary judgment, banning them from using any Disney characters before the trial could resume. Wollenberg granted this. Once the trial resumed, woolenberg moved to assess the actual damage that the Pirates would owe. On the basis of 38 individual infringements of copyright, Disney asked to be paid $190,000 plus $27,292 for attorney's fees and reimbursement of their legal defense cost, which again would end up being millions. The Pirates' response was that they had made no profit to date from the Air Pirates' funnies, and that Disney could not present or prove any loss of profit from the books to date, and so they therefore should only pay a nominal fee for copyright violation. This defense again did not work and they were ordered to pay the full amount they appealed this decision and the trial was taken to the ninth circuit court this trial um went on for 13 years and there was a lot of ups and downs and a lot of rocky moments Uh, how how did that how did that affect your life overall like from you know from year to year during that time from 1970 to
2: 1980 oh it was it was uh i just i just keep drawing it never i never noticed those things just keep drawing i've got been doing a, a weekly comic strip Forever after, you know, I got, I have the O'Neill Strip. I went into the Bay Guardian after the Chronicle. So I'm weekly there all the way from I'm back in the Chronicle from 1980 to 86. I'm in the Guardian way before that and all those years, those 10 years in there. So I've been doing a weekly comic strip every week since about, since I've been about 15 years old.
1: During the Ninth Circuit trial, the Pirates' defense argued that Paradis had to be allowed to copy work substantially in order to deliver, quote, "...the shock of the unexpected," and that their work would never be interpreted as trying to replace Disney's by any reasonable human being, and that even if the characters could be copyrighted, it didn't mean they couldn't be copied. Every individual work was only deserving of a single copyright, and that copyright couldn't be multiplied as many times as the holder saw fit. Otherwise, someone could copyright any sentence, phrase, or name, and then it could never be used by anybody else ever again. You know, just imagine if somebody tr- copyrighted, like, Mobius Strip or, um... Imagine if someone tried to copyright Kfabe. We'd be fucked. We'd be executed by Firing Squad.
0: Led by Andrew W.K.
1: Yeah who isn't a
0: real fucking person come on our show Andrew WK we know you're we know you're listening
1: to this episode a relevant situation to this occurred in 2015 when the fine brothers announced they were launching a company called React World and had officially copyrighted reaction videos as their proprietary brand As part of this new company and initiative, any YouTuber had the opportunity to create a reaction video, and then the Fine Brothers would use tag searching to find the video and ingest it onto their website, where it would be featured as an official React World reaction video. They presented this as a cool new venture to build an empire around reaction videos and give other creators the opportunity to be a part of it. What they were essentially really doing was literally copywriting the concept of making a reaction video and claiming ownership of anybody else's reaction video by default on the entirety of the internet. The situation didn't even need to be taken to trial. The public reaction was so large and negative that the Fine Brothers offered an apology and made the announcement that they were canceling the React World project only a day after first making the announcement. I mention this only to create a more modern analogy to this concept so you can properly grasp the tangential danger of setting precedent like this. Most importantly though, a year later during the slog of this trial, Congress had passed the Copyright Act of 1976, which contained a section that, for the first time in history, had incorporated fair use into federal law. It was no longer a common law doctrine based on a consensus of various court decisions, but a full-fledged, enforceable, self-evident law. Things had changed drastically since this trial began, and it could be a game-changer for the pirates. As a direct result of this new law, the pirates had made a breakthrough in their case. A court decision in the Ninth Circuit set the precedent that, under fair use, A copyrighted work could be directly and blatantly copied once. Conceptually, what the pirates had done was now considered generally legal and protected. I've read this. I've read this in a bunch of different locations, and I've never quite gotten it clear what exactly happened. But I've read that during the trial, there was a moment where there was actually a a little bit of a victory for you guys, where they it was where your your trial directly resulted in them ruling that you could. Um, do a direct parody of something one time, and that came now, that from the, your trial. That the appellate—that was the appellate level. So I was wondering about the specifics of that because I never—I I never could find anything that really definitively explained how what the result was or how it how
2: it came about in your trial. I said to the judges, "A comic book is a work of art, like a painting is a work of art, but a comic book is an addition." There's more than one copy. Completely fucked up the art world at this point. They said, yes, a comic book is a work of art. There it is. The federal court said, God, did that piss off the art world to hear that. They didn't want to be told that comics were art. No, that that really hurt their feelings. And so he says, now you can print 25,000 copies, but you have to tear them all up except one. I said, I can make one mouse work, and they said yes.
1: (laughs) In fact, O'Neill used the ruling in his favor. Utterly broke at this point and barely able to pay for his life, let alone his legal fees, O'Neill commissioned 10,000 different artists to produce 10,000 individual works of Disney parody and since he wasn't the one personally producing the work and therefore not violating his injunction and because it fell within the court's decision to allow one single exact copy of a copyrighted work by one single person there was nothing anybody could do about
2: it and we had 30 tons of mouse liberation from of uh, paintings and sculptures and so we had 50 brigades and they all sold it was 30 tons of artwork
1: that was whenever you got the when you got 10,000 different artists to each do their own
2: yeah and they, and it went from it went to it went. It started in San Diego and went to Philadelphia and New York. Traveled around and, and it got in all. It got in the New York Times in the Sunday Color section. It got into, you know, it got into Philadelphia and all. And there's the Sunday papers in color. All these mouse paintings.
1: Were you just touring them around, or were they selling?
2: We went around. We ran around the Mouse Liberation Front show, and they all sold.
1: Did you use any of that money to
2: pay for your legal? fees no it was their money it was their money so the money just went to the artists the money went straight to the artists well they had a about a five oh, percent bump on to the mouse liberation front for running it
1: yeah i think i think i think it's really funny that you that they told you that you could that one person could make one parody and so you got ten thousand people to each do one you just you got you got to respect the the creative thinking the creative problem solving
0: i love it i love it so much he fucking rules
1: it's funny because it's it's equal parts creative problem solving and also like just being a fucking troll and and just being like a
0: contrarian to the highest order it's kind of great though right like it it really is just fuck you man incarnate and i i love it
1: it's like it's the equivalent of like paying a massive fine in pennies it's so good though it's so satisfying However, it wasn't as simple as that. Though this decision had been made and the Air Pirates' case had debatably helped to establish a new legal precedent that could protect creators for decades to come, it was, however, determined that the Pirates had still far overstepped even this new line drawn in the sand. On September 5th of 1978, the Ninth Circuit Court ruled three to zero that the pirates were guilty of copyright infringement. O'Neill and the Pirates again attempted to appeal this decision, but it was denied. Boo. Yeah, it's really just like, you really are just like taking these dudes for the through the ringer just because you can. Like, these are just a bunch of poor artists. Like, they could they can't pay any of these fees. Also, it's like
0: twenty thousand copies. That's nothing.
1: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. But where anybody else
0: would see the end of the line and utter defeat, O'Neal didn't quite see it that way. I got the news sitting in the bathtub in this tiny house with no foundation. The bathtub is tilted, the water is cockeyed, and Farley, my neighbor, hollers in the window, O'Neal, you just lost nine zip! I was feeling pretty low at that point. My second divorce had just hit. I had 700 pounds of hollering children and 340 pounds of mothers of those children attached to 3,000 pounds of district attorneys after me. I was thinking of jumping off a bridge, and suddenly, ah, good, one more fight. So if if that if it's not made clear to you
1: in this quote, when he was sitting in this bathtub and his neighbor yelled into him that he lost this case, it wasn't the losing of the case that depressed him. It was the fact that he was getting divorced and he had all of these mothers of various children coming after him for all of these different legal fees and things like that and child support or whatever it was coming after him was the thing that was depressing. And that was he was considering jumping off a bridge because of all of this shit going on. And it was finding out that he lost the case that reinvigorated him. You got to respect the man he would then engage in a newer bigger and more confounding game of asymmetrical warfare with his enemy a move that would make his sticking disney characters into his comic strip to regain the rights to it seem like a low-risk lateral move up until this point he'd been on the hook for paying a tremendous amount of money for stealing copyrighted works this is not necessarily seen as a sympathetic position in either the courts or public's eye the pirates were just a bunch of degenerate thieves peddling smut and they had to pay however If O'Neill could somehow trigger his charges to also include prison time, the entire dynamic would change. It would then become someone being locked in prison for exercising their free speech, and even the most conservative person in the country wouldn't look favorably on someone being jailed for drawing a picture in the land of the free. It could shift the public opinion in his favor, and even judges would be much more hesitant to hand down strict rulings when a loss for O'Neill would inherently involve him being put in prison for making comics. And while judges so far had completely rejected the free speech defense even being considered in a civil court case involving copyright, once the trial was about a federal crime and potentially elevated to the Supreme Court, they'd be forced to hear that plea, and it was much more solid than the fair use defense. O'Neill decided he'd trick Disney into moving to have him held in contempt of court, a federal offense with prison time, by violating his long-standing injunction and making some goddamn comics.
2: Fuck yeah!
0: That's right. That's my boy. That's right. That's my boy, Dan O'Neill. Dan O'Neill.
1: You're to you sing that to him. Remember <laughs> that. Remember that song. I mean, just. I mean, we're gonna we're gonna get it. We're gonna lay down the specifics right now of what this is. But just to reiterate, he's been engaged in this legal battle from 1970. It's currently 1978, I think it was. Yeah, 1978. And so for eight years, he's been in this giant ongoing trial against this huge corporation. And they're trying, he's basically fighting for, he's fighting for his life to win or draw or get this case thrown out so that he doesn't have to end up paying millions of dollars and, you know, losing a court case and owing somebody millions of dollars is it's, it's pretty much a, it's a life ruining event. Like that's not something that you easily recover from. That is like at least going to fuck up your day that you lose a court case and you're going to, you owe somebody millions of dollars. And he's been doing this for eight years. And like I said, this is like, if I lose this, like, my whole life is fucking changed. Like, this is, this is, I'm fucked. But he gets the idea of if I just push it a little bit further and really fuck myself to where not only am I going to owe millions of dollars, but I'm going to go to prison. If I push it right to the edge, like I'm over here, I'm like, I'm like five feet from the edge. Like I'm not going to die, but I'm like stranded out here in the middle of nowhere by a cliff and a strong gust of wind. If it really hit me right could knock me off You know, knock me over five feet to this cliff and I could fall over. Maybe a really strong gust of wind. But I'm going to walk right to the edge because I think that if I get right to the edge, I might catch a counter gust of wind that will blow me right back home, baby. Right to the fucking finish line.
0: And then Dan O'Neill was killed in a firing squad of his own idea. And he refused to be referred to as Dan O'Neill, he legally changed his name to Captain Sunk Cost Fallacy.
1: <laughs> yes. Exactly. That is, he is he is the sunk cost fallacy like embodied as a human. Like he doesn't even he doesn't even contemplate it. He doesn't he doesn't even get locked into the loop of like if I go a little bit further, maybe it'll all pay off. Like it's just it's just a foregone conclusion to him. Like he, he's all forward momentum. He's a shark. O'Neill contacted his friend Stuart Brand, publisher of the Coevolution Quarterly, a counterculture zine, and the two cooked up a plan. O'Neill formed something called the Mouse Liberation Front, or MLF, and produced a four-page comic that was published in the quarterly called *Communique* number no. one from the MLF, and it was a comic featuring Mickey and Minnie Mouse that walked through and satirized the
0: events and details surrounding O'Neill's long-running court case. The comic opened with Mickey and Minnie happily married and living on a small farm in Mendocino County. They explained that after 40 years in Hollywood, they had hit bottom, careers going nowhere, hooked on alcohol and on diet pills, and having affairs so jealous and embittered that they had once almost put out a contract on Donald Duck. Their children, Morty and Ferdy, were so concerned that they hired these bozo artists in parentheses the air pirates dosed with psychedelics and indoctrinated by sexual seminars mickey and minnie recommitted to each other but disney had the pirates arrested and prosecuted now mickey and minnie wanted to speak out they credited the pirates with turning their lives Around and defended the artist's right to parody Disney by exactly copying its characters. Of the absurdity of this standard in a way that Luis Brandes, with a writer, Van, full of footnotes, could not. Is this some, he asks of Minnie, with an extra-fingered left mitt. Is this some, he inquired, with a hairy, torsoed Mickey with a lengthy, naked, articulated tail.
1: So, we'll take a look at the communique number one from the mlf uh which there actually is a full um version of this on online um is and it it, you know it's it's four pages um but basically yeah it's 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 drawn in that similar type i mean it's not quite as like going for authenticity as the other books were but it's drawn in a classical-esque style of Disney characters. Honestly, it looks more like a, an underground comic of the seventies than a, a, a pastiche of the old 1930s comics. Um, but it's just, it's just literally, it's, it's basically like an explainer of the court case by Mickey and, and Minnie. So they, they pretty much just go through the whole story where it's like the, they've been kidnapped by the mouse liberation front, but they're actually happy because they've been liberated. And then they, they just explain fair use and why the air pirates are being sued and why it's bullshit basically. It's like, there were, there were, there were like, I don't know why this is, but there were a lot of comics like this, I think, in the seventies. I mean, I don't know what this phenomenon was or what, what the, what the impetus behind this was, but I feel like there was a lot of comics that like, there was a lot of books where they made, they took comics and used them to explain things. Um, like I used to have this book that I found at a garage sale called Economics in Comics, where it was a, it was a book where it was a, a comic, of a bunch of these like anthropomorphic mice that explain the economic system
0: yeah there's also like you know will eisner after he left making comics uh in the you know early 60s he uh made comics for the military he made comics about like how to set up a grenade how to set up a mortar how to um cut off an arm if you are or cauterize a a wound you know if you're if you're Uh, bleeding out yada yada yada
1: and they all kind of look like this where they just have like the characters kind of like facing out front and they're just a lot of dialogue boxes and they're just kind of like explaining things to to the audience on april 20th of 1979 disney petitioned to dismiss its remaining causes of action against the pirates for trademark infringement unfair competition and trade disparagement It was fine with the damages awarded to them so far in the trial. Then, Communique, number one from the MLF, dropped. And Disney did exactly what O'Neill thought they would, wanted them to do. They moved to have Judge Wallenberg hold O'Neill, Brand, and the company that owned the magazine in contempt of court. They were going to be prosecuted criminally. In 1979, O'Neill appeared in front of the Supreme Court. He had no job, $7 to his name, and a banjo, 1963 Mercury convertible, and the suit he was wearing constituted all of his worldly possessions. This trial had broken him and ground him down to the base component parts of what it means to be a human being living in the modern world. He already owed Disney $190,000. They now sought to fine him another $10,000, as well as have him sent to prison for six months. And yet he still fought. Despite the fact that he had nothing to his name was facing off against one of the most powerful and wealthy corporations in the entire world, he'd consistently been put in check with every attempted chess move he'd made so far for the last nine years, and the odds of him coming out of this situation victorious, let alone not going to prison, were basically non-existent. He still fought. He had transformed himself into a joyless conduit for the fight of creative expression against corporate fascism. His body, lean and battered from a decade of the struggle, stood like a huge middle finger poised in a sea of suits on the floor of the courtroom. He had gone from contrarian humorous cartoonist to organic factory of revolt, and all it cost him was everything, and yet he still fought. All of O'Neill's original legal team had abandoned him long ago because he couldn't pay them. His new lawyer, John Keeker, as well as the legal representation for Stuart Brand and the Coevolution Quarterly, brought forth their new set of defenses. O'Neill was forbidden from violating Disney's copyright. However, on account of the new laws put in place by the Copyright Act of 1976, Communique No. 1 from the MLF did not violate their copyright and in fact easily qualified as fair use. It was a single one-off work that featured different caricatures expressing different themes in dissimilar contexts fulfilling dissimilar purposes than any drawings Disney had ever issued. And if fair use didn't cover the comic, then the First Amendment certainly did. They could now use that defense in a criminal case, and Communique Number One from the MLF was a political essay exploring the metaphysical distinctions underpinning copyright law and dramatizing Disney's draconian efforts to muzzle O'Neill. In the end, O'Neill had pushed it far enough that Disney was willing to settle, and more importantly, they'd settle without convicting O'Neill or the pirates with copyright infringement, thus setting precedent that creative expressions such as this could actually be protected under fair use and the First Amendment. So, at the you know at, towards the end of the trial when it was wrapping up in in uh, night in the early '80s. The the big victories was that you didn't have to admit any kind of wrongdoing. You didn't have to admit you didn't you didn't have to say that you infringed on copyright, which was the big victory.
2: No, because I did not. I, I was guilty of none of those things. It was all the whole thing. I said, is, "You what you will do, Disney? What you can do? I signed a piece of paper. I drew a picture of me naked in a barrel. I will." draw no more mouses, and, it down. and the judge cracked up. Disney was really pissed off. I told Disney, we have a mouse disease that you gave us. Now, if you tell us that we can't draw mice, we probably will. If you tell us we can, we probably won't. So, so what we're gonna do here is that this never happened. You know, you go home. I go home. There is no $10 million. There is no $175,000. There is no jail. Go home. And I won't tell everybody how I kicked your fucking ass from here to Christmas.
1: The opposite outcome might have been a grim new turn in the ability that powerful corporations had over the free flow of ideas and expression in our society. But O'Neill had won, even if just by tiring them out. The details of the settlement aren't definitively known, but the rumor was that they involved no admission of guilt towards O'Neill and the pirates in no jail time as long as he agreed to never draw Mickey Mouse again. And that, though he would still be required to pay the damages he'd been charged with, Disney would not seek to collect.
2: Yeah, The, the, the greatest part was this part, is Disney's screaming put him in jail, put him in jail, and put him in jail. And the judge says, you have him here on felony contempt of the Supreme Court. I don't know if it's the contempt of the Supreme Court, that's up to them, it's certainly in contempt of mine. And so now that it's a felony, he gets a quick and speedy trial, which means he will bring in the First Amendment as a defense, which he was unable to do under civil law. And then what he said next is the most important thing ever said about all of the amendments. He said, to discuss the First Amendment is to weaken it. We don't talk about it, we live it. We don't talk about it. To discuss it is to weaken it. You don't wanna be a judge remembered for weakening the First Amendment. I will not welcome this case in my court. And then he said, you knocked him down once and he got up and hit you back. You knocked him down twice, he got up and hit you back. You knocked him down three times and he got up and hit you back. By now, you should have figured out he's Irish. That's <laughs> that the judge said that. <laughs> Dan, do you, uh,
0: you know, you're, you're obviously well beyond the lawsuit. Everything is, you know, done. Do you, when you look back, do you think about it fondly? Do you have regrets? What do you, what do
2: you think about it? Well, no, it was uh, perfect. It was perfect. I, I got my copies right
0: back.
1: The trial was fully wrapped up in 1980. The Air Pirates were required to abide by the original injunction in 1975 to never use Disney characters in their comics again, but otherwise came out with no jail time and with Disney not bothering to collect any of the damages awarded to them. It's believed that, all in all, Disney paid $2 million in legal fees throughout the course of the trial. O'Neill now lives in the small, northern California town of Nevada City, where he enjoys a quiet life and still draws odd bodkins. In the end, I feel torn about what O'Neill and the Air Pirates were attempting to accomplish in the Court of American Creative Expression and Copyright Law. On one hand, I fully support what they were doing conceptually and have next to zero sympathy for the corporate behemoth Disney putting the screws to a broke cartoonist to gain restitution for a hypothetical damage to their brand and loss of revenue that they could never prove actually existed, nor do I even really care if a few smutty parody comics actually did put some tiny dent in the profits of a massively wealthy oligarch. On the other hand, the reality of the situation the Air Pirates were arguing in court is that they weren't just defending themselves from being charged with copyright infringement for a parody. In fact, Disney had been on record several times before and after completely overlooking one-off parodies that had directly lifted their characters just as much as the Air Pirates had. O'Neill and the Air Pirates were literally fighting to be given the right to essentially co-own Mickey Mouse forever. They wanted to be able to produce a comic book featuring these characters unaltered for as long as they wanted, doing whatever they wanted them to do, and for Disney to not be able to do anything about it. And I I can't help but think about Matt Fury and his struggle to stop white supremacists from co-opting the character he created Pepe the Frog as a Nazi symbol. I believe the situation is very similar from a practical copyright standpoint. A group takes a character owned and copyrighted by another entity, wholesale steals it and applies it in a different context where the character is saying and doing things that are morally reprehensible to the original creator, and claims that their ability to do so is protected under fair use indefinitely. Leaving the creator to see their creation just taken out of their hands and used for purposes they never intended for it. was zero legal recourse. And while Pepe the Frog's co-opting is amongst the most insidious and toxic of examples, Creators' copyrighted work being taken and co-opted into memes and spread around the internet with no respect or recognition for their ownership and creation of it is a large, very modern issue that is both a major problem and also probably not something O'Neill and the Pirates ever anticipated back in the early 1970s. Fury won his legal battle and was able to reclaim Pepe, but I can't help but wonder if, had the Air Pirates won in a more definitive way back in the 1970s and been allowed to continue making Air Pirates funnies under the protection of fair use in the First Amendment, if that might have created a legal precedent that might have resulted in a different outcome for Fury, and if this case might have ended with the Nazis winning and his beloved frog just forever becoming Swastika 2.0. Where I've landed is this. O'Neill and the Air Pirates won just enough, but not too much. Through O'Neill's years of fight, he settled out of court on his terms, namely no admission of guilt. He successfully accomplished the goal of not setting a legal precedent that a huge corporation could censor and silence criticism by taking advantage of laws that were put in place to help artists at the expense of artists. And that if artistic expression involved venturing into the gray areas of copyright, it could have a shot of being defensible in court. The effects of this are demonstrably felt. Just think about how completely eviscerated O'Neill had been in the Ninth Circuit Court. And yet think back to our napster episode and how only a couple decades later a small company that literally created an app that let you download any copyrighted music for free went to the ninth circuit and the court actually sided with them against the behemoth music industry because they felt like shutting the company down would be stifling the free share of ideas in 1989 there was the case of campbell versus acuff rose music that actually directly cited the air pirates trial in their verdict The rap group 2 Live Crew had created a parody of Oh Pretty Woman, a Roy Orbison song that was owned by Acuff Rose Music. And the massive music publishing company had taken the comparatively tiny rap group to court for copyright infringement. The U.S. District Court had dismissed the charges, but the U.S. Court of Appeals for the Sixth Circuit reversed that decision, saying that Two Live Crew had infringed on the O oh, Pretty Woman copyright for commercial purposes and had taken the quote-unquote part of the original and therefore had taken too much to qualify for fair use protection. When the case was escalated to the Supreme Court, they disagreed. They reached a decision in favor of Two Live Crew by going step-by-step step through the four factors of fair use established in the Copyright Act of 1976. They determined that a parody done for commercial purposes could still constitute fair use, and that as long as the public viewed the work in a new light and it didn't supersede the original, or in other words, try and replace it in the marketplace, it also qualified for protection. And in their 30-page ruling, they specifically cited the Walt Disney Productions versus the Air Pirates case and mentioned that basically every legal argument Disney's lawyers made to sway Judge Wollenberg in their favor was completely wrong and an example of how not to rule in a case and that if a parody work did not, quote, "...satisfy the same purpose as the original, it should be protected by fair use." O'Neill, however, didn't accomplish the full goal he set out with, to have the courts rule that his use of Mickey Mouse was protected and that he could therefore do it forever— And perhaps he never planned to. Maybe he knew that he'd have to push back to the furthest extremes in order to be knocked back to somewhere in the middle instead of off the board entirely. And that even the compromise to his nine-year battle in which his entire life was thoroughly broken down and destroyed would forever cement a fighting chance for future paradists, satirists, and social critics. Or maybe he's just an old-school troll who loves fucking with people, no matter the cost.
2: Disney was suing everybody, and uh, now you have fair use you can i can't I can't do Disney comic strips, but I can do a comic strip with Mickey Mouse in it because I'm using as as satire. Satire is legal because of that.
1: Do you think that in the, in the grand scheme of things that the trial and what you guys did um, had
2: any impact, made any difference? I'm, I'm write, writing it up, and the name, of the, the name of the story is Mousetrap. The true story, how Dan O'Neill, Ron Turner, Bobby London, Sherry Flanagan, Ted Richards, Gary Halbrin, Larry Todd, and Stuart Brand brought the great criminal Walt Disney to justice. And freed Winnie the Pooh, see? Because Winnie the Pooh people found out, what? Copyright? They, they never asked us about Winnie the Pooh. They just took it. Bam. Sued Disney. All the products went with them. They got their copyright back. Disney had to draw Winnie the Pooh the way it was originally drawn. And they had to give back a whole lot of other stuff that they had stolen. The thing about the Air Pirates case is it showed everybody in the world what a thief Disney
1: was well, Mister O'Neill. You, uh, you, you fought the good fight. You tired them out. You gave them the old, uh, the old rope a dope, as they would say. And um, I definitely do look at it, and I've looked at some of the court documents and things like that. And I, I think that it had, it, it has had an effect. And uh, I thank you deeply because I've made many things that could possibly be con- considered copyright infringement if we didn't have fair use protection.
2: We got to go for it. It's uh, he's politicians. I told him one time, Feinstein and a bunch of them. I told them, all these elected people, I told them, You're politicians. I'm a cartoonist. You are my favorite food and my natural prey. Uh, the two things that bring joy to a cartoonist is the joy of doubt and the joy of combat. Uh, you know, it's just go get them. <laughs> <laughs> well, I'm still vertical and uh Back to working.
0: Do you do you post any of your any of your comics online? Is there any I place put, that I put
2: them on Facebook? Yeah, I just opened up a Facebook thing and I was drop them up there.
1: Is is it Odd Bodkins or is it Dan O'Neill?
2: Yes, yeah, Odd Bodkins. It's uh, yeah,
0: yeah. I, I think. Uh, thank you very much, Dan. For oh, thank for you, talking talking with us. This is really this was a real honor. Um, and uh, yeah, this was yeah. Thank you it's so much. Really cool. There's so much to talk about with this. I don't even know where to start. Like, it, it's so. This is all just so fascinating to me. And the idea of it's funny because I, I was thinking about the Matt Fury connection for the majority of this back half, where I was kind of I was finding myself vacillating between like my boy Danny O'Neill, Neil, like fuck yeah, dude, and then also thinking of yeah, but I agree with him just like making weird porn comics of Mickey and Minnie that have like this hard-edged social political comment to them what if i didn't (laughs) agree with that you know what if it was just like oh i'm gonna take superman and he's just gonna be racist
1: yeah exactly it's like from from a legal standpoint the the like moral charge of the parody is irrelevant like obviously what they were doing with the air pirates funnies was something that i have no problem with that that it was they were making they were making political and social statements that for the most part are in the ballpark of something that I agree with that I think are fairly you could you could fairly say are were um were good statements to be making. Whereas Pepe the Frog, it's just objectively true that what he had been co-opted to be and do was awful and just wrong. And there's no like there's no like good people on both sides, bullshit or whatever. Like they were just Nazis and they had turned that face, that character into like just a symbol for like being a Nazi troll. But from a legal standpoint, none of that stuff. Is relevant it has it it doesn't it has no inherent meaning from a legal standpoint from a legal standpoint it's just like all you can do is look at the specific dynamic of the exchange of copyright and fair use and just say like in the same way that dan o'neill could take mickey mouse and create a, a weekly comic for the rest of his life that just has mickey mouse being like fuck the government you could also have somebody that just took like fuck off squad characters and made a comic that's like fuck off squad Nazi edition or whatever it was and just have the have your characters that you created just like saying the n-word and then like forever you just have your character like there's a drawing of your character saying the n-word like so that that's the thing that really kind of like as you know I feel the same way as you where it's like they're, they're I, I, vacillating between the two of like, oh, this is awesome. But also like the implications of this have a whole other meaning to them that could be very bad.
0: And the real the real delineating factor to me is that it would it, the way copyright law has evolved in the US has been manipulated by Disney specifically. They basically bought Sonny Bono to they basically bought his seat. As a California senator so that he would lobby and work behind the scenes to pass legislation that would forever alter the way American copyright law functioned specifically to protect Mickey Mouse because Mickey Mouse was coming up on his the whatever the anniversary is of the the original copyright Law was whether it was 70 years or a hundred years or how, whatever the original is, you know, that's like, Oh, the, the people or company that own the rights to this specific thing. It, it goes into the public domain after X number of years. Sonny Bono backed by Disney got that copyright law changed, new legislation passed so that co- things don't go into the public domain as long as they're being continually published now. So the copyright renewal happens every time a new book is published. So it's this weird gaming of the system where things like Superman, Batman, uh, you know, uh, fucking Dracula and and Tarzan don't count because they existed prior to this, you know, happening. They'd already gone into the public domain. And for somebody who doesn't know, public domain means a, a literary work is copywritten by its original creators for I think it's 70 years after the original publication date originally. And then after that, it goes into what's called public domain, where it is now open for interpretation from anybody. Anybody can use Tarzan. Anybody can use Dracula. Anybody can use the Frankenstein monster and tell their own story with that character now because he's existed for so long that the original authors uh, or artists behind it theoretically have reaped the benefits from it. And now it is global cultures, right?
1: Yeah, the, the movie Night of the Living Dead, George Romero never filed a copyright on it. So it was always in the public domain, even while he was alive. So what that basically means is like, I mean, George Romero is dead now. Uh, he hasn't been dead for 70 years, but he's been dead for a while. But even when he was alive, you could just take Night of the Living Dead and you could call it Dave Baker's Night of the Living Dead and you could sell it.
0: Yeah. And so, you know, when Sonny Bono got all that legislation passed and everything changed... The the way that our culture now uses these things is is completely different. Superman and Batman are pieces of intellectual property that their original creators saw no money from or very little money from. And in 20 years, each one of them is going to be in the public domain if the laws had not changed, Um they would have. I think the originally the laws got changed to be a 100 years. And then it got changed to this weird perpetual publication thing where it's like, you know, Superman was created in 39, Batman in 41. So in 2039 and in 2041, anybody could make a Superman story and anybody could make a Batman story. They could make a Batman movie. You know, you could have, you know how there's that weird cycle of like, oh, there's like seven Dracula movies coming out this year. And oh, fuck, there's like t- two weird rival Tarzan movies coming out this year. Um, That could have happened with Superman where there could have been Everybody would have had the right to use the the character in whatever way they saw fit and create something that they liked and, and reflected their worldview through the lens of Superman. That shit ain't happening anymore because Disney changed it because Mickey Mouse was going to go into the public domain. So that's kind of why I, I love this idea.
1: And then they tree Sonny Bono to tie up all the loose ends.
0: <laughs> right. And it, it's you know I kind of love the idea that Sonny
1: Bono did not tree himself.
0: <laughs> uh, hashtag follow the roots. So you know that's kind of why I love this stuff that Dan Le- Dan O'Neill is doing so much because it's kind of like yeah fuck you Disney you like fucked everybody like this sucks so bad. Um, but you know I also don't think that it's a good thing for neo Nazis to theoretically be able to steal any artists work and just like make them say racist shit and then all of a sudden it's covered in fair use either
1: yeah which i think like which in, as i theorize that if 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 the air pirates had like definitively won this case it may have set a precedent for that where like we would just be in like a hellscape of copyright or it's just like you anybody can just do fucking anything with anything And it doesn't matter if like this character that you've like spent your fucking life cultivating and creating and somebody could just make it a Nazi and there's nothing you can do about it. But as I said, I think the way that I kind of landed on it to try to marry those two kind of like sides of the coin was that basically what I landed on is. That the way that what they ended up landing on and not that I, I, I don't know if it was worth it for him. Maybe it was. I, I certainly, I certainly wouldn't be too happy with having had to spend 13 years of my life doing that. Um, I don't think I have the intestinal fortitude to fucking martyr myself like that for something, but with, with it a, with it a given that it was worth it. The way that they landed, I think was a good middle ground where they they set a precedent they set a precedent that these types of things could be defensible and protected in court by the first amendment and fair use but not in a way that was just like uh self-contained to where you could effectively just co-own the character as long as you wanted to kind of almost in the way that the Ultraman in Thailand thing was where like they just wanted to just take Ultraman and just also make Ultraman. Like, like what, what the air pirates were trying to do was essentially legitimize that. Like they could have legitimized uh, Chayo Productions just having Ultraman and being like, we just also make Ultraman too. Um, but they landed in a way where they didn't win. They, they, they didn't, they didn't win the case to where it's like, yep. You're good. Just keep making those. They 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 didn't have to admit guilt. They didn't have to admit copyright infringement guilt. But they also had to stop doing it, which I think was a pretty good result
0: for that specific instance. Yeah. Um I just love that he went to that courthouse with a fucking cowboy outfit on that's so rad that's so rad i just love that he was like i'm gonna do this bit and then he didn't you got you like he walked out and went, hey and then
1: he just got tackled like he, he didn't even like get like a second into the bit
0: yeah i love i love this uh i look forward to uh 2024 when air pirates the feature film air pirates the motion picture comes out um yeah this is this is great yeah i mean we're gonna be we're gonna be fucking rich and on that note I'm Dave Baker. And I'm Andrew Price. This has been Deep Cuts. You can find me online at heydavebaker.com. Or if you want to pick up my book, Everyone is Tulip, out now from Dark Horse, you can buy it wherever funny books are sold. Andrew Papa Price. Where can people find you on the internamps?
1: You can find me um, at your local Barnes & Noble doing a book signing for my new book, Everyone is Tulip and also White. And and not in a courtroom to be sued for it.
0: <laughs> I just go, just go.
1: <laughs> and also you can find me at DAPriceRights.com where you can get my actual real non-Nazi book, Deadpool AI Private Eye. <laughs> uh,
0: and, uh, you know, you can also find gear and merch and stuff at our Spreadshop store and uh, the website, DeepCutsPod.com. You should do that.
1: Yep. Or you can go to bit.ly.com slash merch.
0: And finally, please tweet slash show up to his house slash Instagram DM him slash uh find his car registration at the DMV and uh, steal his car and then swap it out with a Chevy Volt because it's a very small car and he's a very large man and that'll be a funny comic image and then like breathe on the windshield and then write deep cuts you coward um please contact andrew wk tweet at that motherfucker
1: go to twitter or instagram those are the two places he actually uses and tweet or post anything a picture of him a picture of us whatever it is and tag him and say go on deep cuts and prove you're real And also tag Kat Dennings, because I feel like she's more likely that she actually looks at her. She's actually the one running her own pages and not like her assistant or something.
0: I look forward to having a very meaningful conversation with Steve Mike. I mean, Andrew WK.
1: Cuts is a production by Boy Genius Media. If you'd like to find this show and others like it,
0: please visit BoyGeniusMedia.com or DeepCutsPod.com. If you want to join in on post-episode discussions, please join the Deep Cuts Podcast Facebook group. Finally, subscribe to our YouTube channel for additional video content.
1: The incidental music for this episode was created by Dee Catalano, whose music can be found at WeKeepOddHours.BandCamp.com and Dad Beats. You can listen to his podcast Food Fight, a food discussion podcast, Anywhere you get your podcasts and the Dead Boy Detectives.
2: Early on, yeah, in the Red Garter in North Beach, I was playing playing in the Red Garter band. You can even Google them; they're that bad. And it was like a chain of Dixieland clubs all the way across the country, all the way to Italy, and uh, they. Uh, <laughs> That's we were playing for Ronald Reagan was running for governor in 1966. And so we're playing for him in North Beach. There we are in Bimbo's 365 Club on Columbus. And the thing is, we had a 1922 hay truck, beer cans, and we're, he's, he's giving his speech. We heard the speech for the first time to all the North Beach Italians, at there's a drug problem. The boss's wife, she plays tenor banjo. What kind of problem? What What do you need? We got, we got, we got drugs. There's no problem. And, um, she's he, the great man is going to get up on the bandstand when the speech. He's talking when the speech is over, and him and Chuck Connors. I'm gonna ride down Columbus, down Kearney, and all the way into the into the uh, Wall street, the Montgomery Street, the financial district, where they'll have confetti coming down and everything. And he's gonna shake hands with us when he gets on the panel. So I'm up there and I have a I'm sniffing and snorting, and I had a bit of a cold and, I, and I'm working, 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 and getting myself a booger together. It was kind of about the half the size of a pea and it had a even kind of purple and green and it had a hair in it. You know, it's just pretty, pretty well shaped booger. And, and then so when there he is, I'm shaking hands. And I only come up to his Adam's apple. He's a giant. And I'm looking at his neck, which is like flying over Utah at sixty thousand feet. You know, it's just all so these Endless canyons. <laughs> there's, there's, there's these wrinkles. It just becomes another landscape you know, from 60,000 feet. And then when I, and I shake hands with him, and he feels it, and he smiles, and there's this glint in his eyes, and he smiles, and I knew what I had done. Every kid that picks his nose and eats it knows that one of those boogers is the lucky booger and if you eat the lucky booger you grow up to be a movie star or president and he obviously ate his movie star booger and now he had my presidential booger and so i i blame myself for his election it was your fault it was yeah. all
0: your fault, Dan. No, it was all your
2: fault. And, but I, I do my best. And I every year I have out in the woods. I have a freezer full of certified boogers. You know, all, all, all recorded time and date, and they're all frozen. And so, the Republican National Committee, every time that they want to have election, I, I offer them to a cut rate. Yeah, wholesale rate so you can feed them to their candidates and possibly get lucky you know i mean did trump, trump got one yeah yeah it wasn't mine though cause trump, reagan got mine <laughs> <laughs>